following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Faith Bible Church, Jesus Christ is coming again. This is our hope, this is our expectation, this is our anticipation, and the climax of salvation history. His return hails the completion of our redemption and a time of judgment for God's enemies. In fact, his return marks the inauguration of his rule on this planet physically for 1,000 years. Glorified saints will rule with him and regular saints will live under the only righteous ruler they have ever known. The Christ's second coming begins your resurrection in a perfect, glorified, flawless, never tired, never achy, COVID-free, never sick body. And all of God's rewards comes with it. It's no wonder that the early church had incredible joy and incredible comfort by the return of Christ, because not only were the readers of Second Peter battling with external persecution upon the church coming from the outside, but they were also battling and facing the turmoil of the inward attack of false teachers. And no wonder they were excited about the second coming of Christ as coming who also would be the judge who would make all things right. My friend Nathan Busnitz writes this, you ought to read this quote in your outline, it says, the hope of Christ's coming was of paramount importance to the early church. In fact, its certainty was so real that the first century believers would greet one another with the term Maranatha, which means, Lord, come quickly. What does Maranatha mean? Lord, come quickly. We need to bring that back, friends. Uh, maybe make, make you feel like you're in the 80s, but it's still pretty cool. And instead of being frustrated, he says, by the possibility they clung to the return of Christ as the culmination of everything they believed. Not surprisingly, the New Testament reflects this intense anticipation by referencing Jesus Christ's return, whether directly or indirectly, in every New Testament book except for two. You know, as we watch our nation forget its roots and as we see our culture crumble in front of us, and then we experience a pandemic that has the power to kill, but also is being used as political and sociological ends, we too, very much so, desire the second coming of Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? And most of you know just how important this doctrine is, in fact, to every single Christian. But there is probably one in our midst who knows better how important this doctrine is, do you know who that is? His name is Satan. And he realizes just how important this truth is to Christians and to the church of Jesus Christ. When Christians live in anticipation daily of the Lord's return and his promise, they demonstrate a purity, a spiritual zeal, and an enthusiasm that makes them super attractive. It makes them winsome and powerful, and the enemy hates that. In fact, I like the way Paul says it in Romans 13, 11, there in your outline. Do this knowing the time, knowing the time. He's writing this way back in the first century, that it is already the hour for you to be awakened from sleep. And now salvation is what? 
It is nearer to us than when we believed. He's not saying they've got salvation later. He's saying our ultimate redemption at the return of Christ is nearer now than ever. And when believers forget about the second coming, it's pretty sad what happens to us. We begin to focus on the things of this world so much so that we almost forget our spiritual privilege. We forget all that Christ has done for us. And then we become absorbed in the temporal and we often grow apathetic towards the things that really matter and sometimes cold towards the Lord and cold towards eternity. And when you think about becoming cold towards eternity, it's almost ridiculous because I almost wanted to tie one string from one goalpost to the other goalpost and put a little tiny knot in the middle and just remind you that that knot is your life. And that string goes on through eternity future and eternity all directions and it's just a little blip on the radar, your life. Our greatest life, which will be eternal life, is forever. And this is just a mere shadow of that particular event. And Satan knows if he can get you to minimize the fact that eternity is awaiting us and that the second coming is going to launch us into a whole different kind of life, then he can remove a very significant source of joy for your life, love for your life, comfort, anticipation, and particularly motivation. When we don't think often enough of the second coming, I'm not going to ask you, but I even my own heart, as I'm studying this every day, more and more I'm thinking about the second coming of Christ. And my passion would be by the time we end chapter 3 that you can't help yourself but to think about it repeatedly every single day because it will adjust how you live. It will adjust your joy. It will adjust your measure of love knowing that our Lord is coming for us. And the devil, what he wants to do is he wants to continually place skeptics around us and those who are indifferent to his coming and particularly, he wants to put false teachers into the church who will reject, who will minimize, who alter Jesus' promise of coming again. And those same cynics who uh, really curse the church today and seminaries and books and blogs were also around in Peter's time. And so Peter writes Second Peter. And in chapter 1, he wants to encourage us with our incredible sufficiency in our salvation and also our confidence in God's word. And then when he writes chapter 2, he wants to make sure that you know about the doctrine and the doom and the deeds of these false teachers so you can identify them, so you can point them out. And now, in chapter 3, he wants to encourage us with the reality of his second coming, that he's coming, that it's true. And he wants to affirm that it is definitely combated by the false teachers, but it is very clear in both Old Testament and New Testament in fact, it is so clear for Christians, the return of Christ is compelling. It should change the way we live. And he's going to wrap this up. You need this chapter and you need the end times. You do. You need to think about that this is not your life. That your life is going to be eternal life if you're in Christ. And you need to think about it, students, that the end times will change the way you live. You'll live much more pure. You'll live making sure that you're not doing anything embarrassing when he comes. That kind of thing. Your, your future and our future laid out in the scripture really helps you to understand the news as you're looking at what God is doing worldwide through his providence. Eschatology will motivate you to make certain that your life is actually right now. Is it right now? Come on, look up here. Is your life right now living for eternity? 
How many of you genuinely right now want to hear from Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant? Can I see your hands? Let me help you, friends. In order for you to hear that, you got to be, are you ready? This is going to shock you, a faithful servant right now. It makes sense, doesn't it? You need to be about the process of serving him now so that you can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In fact, the return of Christ, those of you longing for justice are going to see that immediately satisfied. And the return of Christ guarantees a new resurrection body. Are you excited about that? Uh, those who are older, much more excited than those who are younger. But understand, with your aging body, with battles with sickness, with struggles with health and pains, with fear of getting viruses, etc., this is what you've been longing for. This is the answer, an eternal, glorified body. And the return of Christ strengthens our hope in all those things. So under the theme that this is certain, you want to understand that what he's going to establish in verses 1 and 2, this coming is certain. It's absolute. It cannot be <laughs> contradicted. I don't care what the false teachers say. It is absolutely certain. Under that theme, there are two major points we want to highlight. And the first in your outline is that the remembering the return of Christ is precious. It's precious. Take a look at verse 1. If you have your Bible open, I hope you do, to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, with deep affection, Peter is writing to these churches in Asia, and he wants to turn the discussion right now at the very beginning of chapter 3 from these horrible, evil, false teachers in chapter 2 to his beloved children in chapter 3. So we've been talking about what the false teachers do in chapter 2, but now we're going to be talking about what the children of God do about those false teachers and about the second coming of Christ. So the focus of this chapter is on the beloved, on you, Christians. And he wants his readers to remember Christ returning, and he desires for them to not pay attention to what the false teachers say about the second coming of Christ, but he wants them to have confidence and to pay attention to what God says about the second coming of Christ. And he repeatedly tells us that the Bible clearly, repeatedly teaches that Jesus Christ will return to rule and to judge. And he begins this chapter with this statement in letter, uh, first uh, out under point number one. First, the return of Christ is precious to God's beloved children. The return of Christ is precious to God's beloved children. Look at how verse one begins. It says, this is now beloved. He shares his love. He shares his affection for these Christians and these churches. He calls them beloved. And you say, why are you making a big deal about this? Because if you read it in the original language, beloved is first in the, in the verse. It is emphasized in the verse. He's saying, beloved, most of all, I want you to make sure you understand that. Emphasize. And so he's introducing his defense and affirmation of the second coming. But he's talking to Christians here. And when he uses beloved, he uses this word five times in 2 Peter. Four of them are in chapter 3. Four of them. In fact, this is what I want you to look at. Verse 1, this is now beloved, the second letter that I'm writing to you. Now look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that the Lord uh, with him one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Verse 14, therefore, verse 14, beloved, 
since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men. He's talking to Christians now. He's not talking about false teachers. He's talking about what Christians do about false teachers and how they respond to the second coming of Christ. And beloved is so close. When he says beloved to you, don't just we don't use that term in our language. Typically, we don't call each other beloved except in a romantic moment. It's so personal. It's so intimate that it is used by God the Father to describe God the Son on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, This is my, what? Beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so this is his deep, persistent love for his readers. He loves those believers in those churches in Asia, and it's a love that seeks to promote their true welfare. It's a love Peter has proven to them as an apostle, and it's basically an encouragement. And beloved is connected every time he gives an exhortation in this chapter, and it's also in contrast to the denunciation of these false teachers. And so basically, he starts chapter 2 with bogus, and he starts chapter 3 with beloved. Beloved. And in this chapter, he's going to correct a few Christians who have been misled. Uh, there are some almost Christians who are really buying in to these false teacher teachings. And those who were tempted to embrace the false teachers needed redirection. And so Paul, excuse me, Peter, before he corrects them, he actually tells them that you're my beloved. I, I love you. I care for you. He wants them to know before and as he corrects them, which is a good thing for us to remember as we correct people that they know that we love them. It is so important to love the brethren. And loving the brethren means serving them and to, to sacrifice for them. Why? Because it shows how we as Christians love Christ. It shows that we are truly saved. If you would, look at those people in your row right now. Go ahead, look at them. I'm going to wait till you look at them. Those people are God's beloved. They're the people that Christ died for. Sure, they mess up. Sometimes they're smelly, and I know that's why you sit separate. But understand, they're beloved. And, and if you're a minister, if you're a discipler, if you're a, a, a small group leader, if you're a community group leader, whatever your leadership, as you're investing into people, you need to remember these are God's beloved. They're not your beloved. They're God's beloved. Jesus Christ died for them, and that for they have incredible value. And sometimes they can hurt you. Sometimes they can be mean to you. Sometimes they can be indifferent to you. But understand, they're God's beloved. And we need to approach one another in that manner. And that's how Peter's approaching these people. Even though he could be very frustrated with their actions as they've kind of bought in or they were struggling with the false teaching, he wasn't. He calls them beloved. And beloved is for those only inside the church. You understand that. It's not for those outside the church. It's those inside God's family. Those outside God's family don't look forward to Christ's return. All they face outside of God's family is judgment and eternal punishment. But those inside, the beloved, they face reward and eternal blessing. It is precious to us to think about the second coming of Christ because it's not just an event. It's a relationship that we have with our Savior that's been, in a sense, restored face to face. But also, secondly, in your outline, the return of Christ is precious when you remember it continually. Continually. Very important that this is an ongoing remembrance. 
in verse 1 among exegetes, there was a massive discussion on the phrase. And look at the phrase of verse 1. The second letter I am writing to you. People going, is that Peter? Is that some lost letter? Listen, after reading volumes on this, the best solution, I believe, is he's just talking about First and Second Peter. It's really simple. He's just talking about his two letters, these canonical letters, and Peter's letting these churches let them know that he is zealous, he is committed, and he's going to keep writing them until they get it. You say, what do you mean? It's almost as if the churches are like every other church. They don't get it the first time. Are you with me on that? Do you often get it the first time? We need repetition. And so Peter tells them, look, these same truths, I'm going to tell you again, I'm writing you, I'm going to keep writing you until you get it. Get what? I want you to be, verse 1, stirred up in your sincere mind. I'm stirring you up in your sincere mind. Now, now this is where he's heating up again. And I shared with you last week that stirring up was like waking someone up. Okay, you love them, but you want to wake them up. You're shaking them up. Wake up, stirring you up. That's exactly what the word means. So they're laying there. They're kind of being schnoozy. But you're going, man, there's danger here. And you got to wake up. But more than danger, he wants to remind them of two things. So get this right. He wants to remind them you need to reject the lies of these false teachers. Because everything they're telling you is from their own mind. They're making it up. And they're lying to you about Christ. And they're lying to you about the second coming. So reject the liars and reject the lies. But I also want you to embrace the truth. I want you to remember the truth. I want you to recall the truth again and again, continually. I want you to be thinking about this truth. The stirring up is actually in a tense that is ongoing. So he's not just waking them up once. Are you ready? Look, he's waking them continually. He's saying, I, I'm going to keep shaking you. I'm going to keep shaking you. I'm going to keep waking you up until you make this a part of your life every single day. That you remember, that you recall. These are very, very important processes. And what he's doing is he's a good shepherd. A good shepherd wants to help the sheep be protected from the wolves, right? But also, he wants them to have good pasture. He wants them to have good food. And the good food is, you remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming again. He also wants them to remember in their redeemed minds to embrace the second coming. Listen, a big concern is not just to stay away from the error and the lies and the liars, but to saturate your mind with truth and stick with apostolic teaching. When I say apostolic teaching, that's another way of saying the New Testament. It's what the apostles wrote in our New Testament. Stick with what they wrote. Stick with what's written. And he says... I'm appealing to your sincere mind. Do you see that in verse 1? In which I'm stirring you, uh, stirring you up, your sincere mind. Sincere is actually a word where you test it by the sun. It actually, you take a vase, and if it had any cracks with it, you put it right as you're looking through the sun, and the sun is shining through it, you see the cracks. But if it's pure and it's whole, there's no cracks that, that will shine through. And he's saying, I want, in your sincere mind, your sincere mind's been made that way by God. You can't have a sincere mind unless you're redeemed. But you can now hold up the truth of God's word and see that it's no cracks. And you can hold up the lies of the false teachers and see that it's filled with cracks. You have a sincere mind. Use it. Use it. I want you to be using it. And that's what a born-again mind does. Stirred up. 
and looking and evaluating. And I want you to know this. I want you to do this. I want you to wake up to this reality. This is what's best for Christians to continually be reminding themselves. Are you all in agreement that memory is an important thing? Yes? You know, communion that we try to practice every week, and we will starting in March, but we do it once a month right now because of this whole outdoor thing. But understand, communion is really driven by one major command, remember. Christ knew that we would forget. He knew that our minds would drift. He knew that we'd go through Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and we'd stop thinking about the things that are really important, what Christ has done on our behalf. So he said, practice communion. Practice it. Well, we need to be practicing our remembrance of the second coming as well. And that's what Peter is telling us here. I want you to remember this. Listen, memory is important, right? All you have to do is forget your anniversary once, and you know how important memory is. Uh, forget a child's birthday once, and you know how important your memory is. We have a little photo frame. Maybe you have this at your house. It's an electronic one, and it rolls through pictures. And we had two bins worth of memory books. Anybody have memory books and they're stuck off in the garage somewhere? You know, things that happen in your life. We thought, this is ridiculous. We're moving these from place to place. They weigh three tons each. And so we went through all the memory books, ripped out all the best pictures, and then copied them. And now they show through this little, little screen ongoing. And we're reminded of some wonderful, sweet events where God did amazing things. And amazing relationships and amazing friendships. That kind of thing. Just to remember. Because memory is important. It's essential for us in our spiritual lives. And if you notice, look at verse 1, you'll see the word reminder. If you look at verse 2, you see the word remember. This, these two verses are about remembering. Remember these things. Don't forget these things. You're to recollect. Bring to mind. Bring it to mind. Bring it to mind. And that means you bring it to mind. You choose to remember this. You choose to recall this over and over and over. And that's verses 1 and 2. So remembering is a main focus here. And he wrote these churches twice to stir them up. Wake up and keep remembering with that redeemed mind that you have to stand against error and stand for truth. And as one of his beloved children, you're to remember Christ's return daily that's why it's ongoing why that tent stir up is i want to keep stirring you up every single day to remember think about his return review his return look forward to it now i don't know about you but i had kids that when they were you know twos threes and fours i'd come home and there'd be screaming screaming now it wasn't screaming in dread that when i came home it was screaming of joy that daddy's home right because daddy meant fun and then, then we're going to have fun with that. And so they screamed in anticipation. Well, there's a little bit of that feeling right here in this text. An expectation that you're excited about the return of Christ. Not dreading it. Definitely not indifferent to it. But you're anticipating it. That our Father, our God, is coming. He's going to manifest Himself. And all those people who rejected him, all those people who made fun of him, all those people who aren't respond are going to dread that moment, but his children are going to say, Daddy's home. We can hardly wait. That kind of anticipation. Listen, the second coming is the lens that you're supposed to look at this world through. And if you don't, you're not going to see Christ correctly. 
If you don't, you're not going to live biblically. If you don't, you're not going to grow to maturity. If you don't, it's, it's really not going to accomplish its purpose. You need a second coming outlook. You need glasses that remind you every day, Maranatha, the Lord, come quickly. Because if you don't, honestly, the Bible would teach, not me, the Bible would teach you're too comfortable here. If you're not anticipating his coming, then you're forgetting who you really are. You're forgetting your incredible spiritual privileges. You're forgetting what Christ has done on your behalf and what he's going to do. You're not functioning on earth with the right motivation. You're not really loving Christ. His return is precious. It is a centerpiece of our joy and our hope and our love. And therefore, we need to be remembering it every single day. Again, my goal in this series and the goal of chapter 3, it's really not my goal, it's God's goal in chapter 3 is that this is something that becomes a part of your thinking every single day. Every single day. And Peter wants to make sure not only is it precious, but point number 2 in your outline, it is promised. It is promised. Remember the return of Christ. It is promised. Repeatedly, over and over. Take a look at verse 2. That you should remember the word spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The false teachers do not want you to believe in the second coming of Christ, but if they actually give any ground at all, they want you to think about this as being an afterthought, as being an add-on to the life of Christ, like somebody made it up. But Peter says, absolutely not. This truth is so certain the second coming was and is promised in the Old Testament. It is, is and was promised by our Lord Jesus Christ. It was and is promised by the apostles in the New Testament. It is promised everywhere. It was God's plan before creation. He's coming again and he's taken over. He's going to be the king. He's going to be the king. He is the king. He's going to manifest his royalty. He's going to manifest his reign. And first in your outline, remember that the return of Christ was promised in the Old Testament. Remember, it was promised. That's what he says in verse 2. That you should remember, ongoing remembrance, the words spoken beforehand. Talking about, again, before, before their time, before this was written. So therefore, the Old Testament, by the holy prophets. Uh, like the churches Peter writes to, you must be remembering, fire up your memory, that this was promised by the holy prophets. You say, why does he call them holy prophets? He just talked about the unholy false teachers. So he refers to them as holy. Now, of course, they're made holy by salvation. They're positionally holy. But they're also men, and you know them in the Old Testament, they sought to walk in obedience. They didn't always achieve that perfectly, but they sought to. And they sought to live in a way that pleased the Lord as a prophet of God. Far from perfect, but they knew God, they obeyed God, they loved God. Where the false teachers didn't know God, they didn't love Him, and they didn't obey Him. These are the holy prophets of the Old Testament. They spoke beforehand, which really means to be told in advance. They, they shared these truths that God had given them, inspired them to give. And the tense actually says that what they spoke was alive then, and it's still just as relevant today. In other words, a perfect tense, which means it happened then, but has ongoing results. And this is ongoing. Remember these things because it's just the living, active Word of God. And it's alive today. So the words they wrote about the Second Coming are just as alive today as they were back then when they wrote. They all are going to come true. What did the prophets predict? Now, one more time, before you freak out, 
understand the New Testament, there were already 300 references to the second coming in the New Testament. There's just about as much in the Old Testament. Did you know that? God wants you to know that He's coming. And He wants you to live in that reality. Let's look at some of these verses together to kind of gain it. And the best part of the sermon today is right now. All you're going to hear is the Word of God, and the Word of God is perfect and never makes a mistake, okay? So it's the perfect part of the sermon. Look at Isaiah 34, verse 1. It sounds like the book of Revelation. Draw near, O nations, and hear and listen. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and His wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter, so their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off a stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, just like the book of Revelation. Look at Ezekiel 30. For the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near, the time of doom for the nations. The sun, uh, Joel 2, will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Hey, read aloud with me together. Let's do it. Micah chapter 1, verse 3. Let's read it together. Ready? Here we go. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from his place, and he will come down and tread on the high places on the earth. I'll read Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed, and the day that is coming will be set ablaze. <clears throat> says the Lord of hosts, that, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. going to be bad. But then, for you, Christians, believers who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You ever seen that? Come on, you ever seen a newborn calf skipping like it's in a stall? Just hop? I mean, he's talking about you guys are happy. Okay, and, and not being irreverent here, you're skippy happy. Okay, because you will tread down the wicked and for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet on the day in which I'm preparing, says the Lord of hosts. That is just a tiny bit of the Old Testament promises. The second coming is not a secret. It's in the scripture. The second coming is not a wish. It is written in God's word from Isaiah to Malachi. It is God's word. The day of the Lord is there. God's final wrath is there. And in the centerpiece of all of it is the second coming of Christ. Well, secondly, in your outline, remember the return of Christ promised in the New Testament. The New Testament. That's what he means when he says, remembering the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your what? Your apostles. Spoken by the apostles. Why does he say that? Let me help you with a little bibliology here. The Bible was written in the Old Testament by prophets. The Bible in the New Testament was written by apostles. The prophets oversaw the writing of the Old Testament. The apostles oversaw the writing of the New Testament. Every book that was written was overseen by an apostle in the New Testament. And so by using the prophets and the apostles here, he's saying the whole 66 books of the canon declare the return of Christ. And I want you to remember that. And I want you to remember the promises that are in the word about it. And here in the New Testament... The apostles were writing down what Jesus spoke while he was on earth, and they also were uniquely inspired as writers of the New Testament and wrote down what the Holy Spirit inspired them to write. And these are not just genuine, sincere Christians. These are, look at the pronoun there, your apostles. What he's saying there, he says, you know them. They're not the fake ones like the false teachers. These are the real ones, okay? He's contrasting verse chapter 2 with now chapter 3, and he's making that transition. He's saying, these are your apostles. These are the ones who were 
gifted by God to record the inspired word of God, which made up the New Testament. That's what he's telling you. He's saying, look, trust your Bible and know that these are your apostles. They're, you know them. You know Peter. You know Paul. You know me, as Peter writes here. And there might have been other apostles that they had ministered uh, in these Asian churches. And Peter reminds them, this is not merely a, a sincere claim. Friends, this is scripture. Listen. If you're going to trust your Bible, you're going to have to believe in the second coming. But if you're not going to accept the second coming, then you've got to throw your Bible away. It is so saturated in your scripture that you must embrace it. And that's why he's saying, this is what makes it certain. This is where I take my stand on the scripture. This is what he's saying. So understand, he's reminding them that this is the living word of God. And he repeatedly proclaims the second coming. 23 out of the 27 books that make up the New Testament clearly, directly or indirectly, mention the second coming. Of the four that don't, two of them have a reference to it, Galatians 5.5 5 and 2 John 8. And so therefore, ultimately, only two books in the New Testament don't mention his second coming and understand that even in spite of that, out of the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there are around 300 references, 300 verses, where the Lord's apostles, your apostles, make mention that Christ is coming again. 300 times in your New Testament. Does Jesus Christ want you to respond to the second coming of Christ? He wants you to not just know it, friends. He wants you to live by it. In fact... In proclaiming this great hope, the apostles were repeating the promise of our Savior. This is the best part of the sermon as well. Let me read some of these, and you'll read some with me. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious what? Throne. He's going to rule for a thousand years. Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Read aloud with me, if you would. Everyone together. Luke 12, 40. Let's read it together. You too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Be ready. He tells us over and over and over. In fact, I've got Matthew 24 here. It says the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the power and mighty glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds. Read aloud with me, if you would, Matthew 24, 42. Everyone together. Ready? Be on the alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. I've got Acts 11 here. After the ascension, after he's ascended, the angel says, Men of Galilee, look, talking to the disciples, why do you stand looking up in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. In fact, read with me, if you would, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Let's read it together. Ready? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll conclude with Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope. It's a happy hope. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming back. And understand, you and I got to be remembering that and his return every single day. The Apostle John probably says it best, right in Revelation chapter 19, describes the return of Christ. Let me read one last passage. It says, And I saw heaven opened, 
And behold, a white horse. Some of you are wondering if animals will be in heaven. We know there's one white horse here. Later on, you're going to know that there's a bunch more white horses coming up. And he who sat upon it was faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. What's that name? Nobody knows. All right? And he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on... White horses. So we got a lot of horses. All right. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, and we know that name, and that name is what? King of kings and Lord of lords. From Matthew to Revelation. Jesus' return is reiterated over and over and over and over and over. And you've got to get this. It's because he wants you to remember it over and over and over. When you go to work, when you come home, when you're hanging out with your family, when you're hanging out with your friends, when you've got free time, when you're watching TV, remember Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming again. It will change your life. Peter's going to tell us how it's going to change our life as this chapter unfolds. But understand, the false teachers are wrong, Peter's saying. He's saying they're absolutely dead wrong because the Bible, God's word, the living word, is right. And FBC, Jesus Christ is coming again. It is certain. Declare it. Live it. Remember it. Long for it. Treasure it. Dream about it. Hope for it. Speak it. Expect it in unwavering confidence. It is certain. That's his point. So how are we going to take this home? Let me give you four how questions, all right? Four how questions as we wrap this up. How intense is your heart anticipation for the second coming? Now, I want you to be honest. You don't need to answer to anybody right now. But in your heart of hearts, how intense has it been? I can tell you it hasn't been as intense as it should have been in my life. And I'm telling you right now that as I'm going through this chapter, it's getting pretty hot. And I want it to be really hot really on fire for you. I want you to be thinking about it every single day because no matter what this world brings us, we have incredible hope. The hope of the second coming. Do you remember your wedding day? Now, if you're not married, you don't remember. If you're single, you don't remember. That's okay. That's coming, maybe. We hope. But how do you remember your wedding day? I remember my wedding day. I remember it. In fact, we have to take pictures of it. Why? Because we forget half of it. We have to take movies so we can recall what actually happened because we're so excited, we're a little bit afraid, we're anticipating all these emotions and whatever, but we're anticipating. We can hardly wait. I remember Jean. I remember her walking down the aisle. I cried. I did. And then I was overwhelmed by the fact that God had given her to me. I mean, here was this incredibly godly woman, incredibly, incredibly good-looking still, amazingly cute, and and incredibly mature for her 26 years old. And God gave her to me. And that wedding day was incredible. We, we took significant steps to make sure that the Lord was honored in this whole ceremony. And, and, uh, and it was just a sweet time. And afterwards, my mentor actually told me, he says, I've never sensed the Spirit of God more at a wedding than yours. I thought, wow. Praise God. That's what we wanted. We wanted Christ 
be honored and glorified. But do you remember your wedding? Do you remember how excited and how fearful and how, how it did incredible things to you at your wedding? Well, that's where our hearts need to be with the second coming. Even emotionally, friends. It's our wedding, a perfect wedding, the best wedding. And you're not just sensing the Spirit of God. You're immersed in the Spirit of God. You're one with Christ at His coming. It is going to be incredible forever. Are you anticipating that? Every single hope that you've ever had in your entire life is satisfied at that moment. At that moment. Letter B. How intense is your anger over injustice awaiting the second coming? I know what some of you are going through. Not everybody here today and even in the first service, but there's a bunch of you that changes our society, our government. I know secretly, no, that's not the right word. Secretly. You're not secret about it. You're out, out, out verbal about it. Okay, you want justice. You want truth. You don't want lies and politics. You're depressed. You're angry. You're disappointed. You're livid. You're trying to figure out what state you can live in, what country you can live in, what, what planet you could travel to in order to free you from this ridiculous chaos. Friends, the solution is not Tennessee and it's not Texas and it's not Idaho. The solution is Jesus Christ will bring justice to this planet. He will do it. There'll be no more lies, no more manipulation, no more injustice, and Christ will rule with absolute perfect righteousness. He will never say oops. He will never make a bad decision, ever. There'll never be a political agenda again. So, the exhortation of this passage, stop looking at the world for solutions and start looking forward to Christ to come. Stop turning your, turn your, fo your focus from the corruption to Christ. Stop dwelling on the, this pitiful realm and actually focus on the perfect ruler. As a Christian, you, as you become more and more through chapter 3, more, more in love with the second coming of Christ, you need to move to more anticipation and less struggle. In other words, instead of struggling with the world, you need anticipating His coming. His coming. Bring back the greeting if you have to. Say it to yourself if you have to. But say, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. Letter C, how bold are you at turning the conversation toward Christ's coming? The lost need to know where your hope is and where your hope lies. Some won't care. Others are really, right now, still thinking about their death. They're fearful. They're thinking about what COVID's going to do to them when they catch it. And they're wondering if they're going to die. They're wondering what's going to happen through all this chaos. You need to tell them, look, I'm living as responsible as I can. But I want you to tell, no, right now, that my hope is in Jesus Christ. I'm not afraid because of Jesus Christ. I get to go and be with him, and I know someday that Jesus Christ is going to rule this planet. He's going to rule. He's going to take over. And letter D, how certain are you of your readiness for the judgment to come? Every single person in this room knows you're going to be judged. The Holy Spirit actually says he convicts the world of judgment. So you know that judgment is coming in your heart of hearts. Are you ready? You're going to have to give an evaluation of your life. Are you ready? But understand the second coming is only for those inside the family. The second coming is for those inside the family. They're going to get reward. They're going to have eternal blessing. But those 
outside the family of God who aren't forever with Christ will face judgment and eternal punishment. And listen carefully. Becoming a Christian is not something that you choose. It's something that God chooses. You don't pray a prayer and walk an aisle and make a decision. God must change your heart. So you need to cry out to him and say, change my heart. Change my heart so I can have a heart of faith and believe who you are. Believe that you're only the only way of salvation. Believe that you're the only one who can forgive my sin and turn from my sin. Give me a heart that says I can turn to you in faith and repentance. Give me a heart that's a new heart that wants to obey you, that wants to follow you, that wants to honor you. Give me a new heart that is forgiven of sin and cleansed and washed. And let not my sin be in the way. That's why Jesus came, friends. He came because sin separates you from God forever. Forever. Your pride, your impatience, the words that you may have spoke even yesterday and today that were ungracious, those will separate you from God forever. And all you need is one. One sin to separate you from ever, forever. And that's why your sin must fall on Christ who became a, a man. God was born a man because of his love for you. He became a man, lived a perfect life, and then offered himself as a substitute so that all of God's wrath for sin fell on Christ. And it was acceptable because it was perfect, and he is perfect. And it was acceptable because he's a, he was a man, the God-man, who died in our place as mankind. So he suffered and died for his children there and then rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. And when your sin falls on Christ, his righteousness can cover you and he will transform you. You say, give me that heart to believe that, to trust in that. Rescue me. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. I'm tired and weary of sin being my, my master and me its slave. I'm tired of this life trying to live in my own strength. Free me up. Give me a heart that wants to respond in repentance and faith. Because it's only that heart, it's only that transformed heart that will actually make you right and ready for his coming. You cannot trust in Muhammad and Buddha. You cannot trust in Joseph Smith or Mary. There in the grave, Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one shall come to the Father except through him. And when that happens, then you know him personally. You know Christ. You'll want to follow Christ. You'll want to obey Christ. You'll want to love Christ, and you will anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time in your word. Thank you again for your word, which speaks so plainly to us. We pray, Father, that there are any here who don't know you personally, that you begin to draw them to yourself, and you would help them to respond to you and cry out to you, that you would give them a new heart, that they could then respond in repentance and faith and be born again. We pray for the rest of us that we might daily remember these promises, daily remember that you are coming, daily remember that this is just a small blip on the radar of eternity and that we need to live this life in such a way that would be pleasing to you. Help us to stay true to 2 Peter chapter 3 and begin to dive in and really understand where you're going in this argument and what you were doing that might be incredibly impactful in our own lives. And we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. We thank you that the second coming is certain. We thank you that it's written all throughout the scripture. And we ask and pray that our response today would honor and please you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast 
and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.